Okay. If you have a Bible with you today, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. So, what began as a one-of message has evolved into a series of messages. Wasn't my intention going in, but God likes to edit, and I try to follow him, and he does. And so, we're, it's evolved into a series of messages with the title, The Powerless Place. And all of us have been there, you know. Some of us have been there longer than we want to, but we, we experience these seasons where we're not on the mountaintop, but we're in the valley. And so we've, we've looked at a bunch of things. In the first message on the series from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I told you how God said to the Apostle Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And the next week we looked at Mark 14, 35 and 36, as I spoke on the topic of the dark night of the soul and what that might mean. And, and shared how even Jesus experienced it when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14 says, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, that the owl might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. The following week we looked closer at Jesus' kind and merciful words from Matthew 11, where he says, Come to me. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. That sounds to me like it's an invitation to the people who are in the powerless place. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find a rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And last week we took a look at the call and on David's life and King David from 1 Samuel 16 and, and how he was anointed and, it, and the picture of just how much God's ways are not our ways. We looked specifically at the second half of verse 7, where God says to the amazing prophet Samuel, he says, the Lord does not look at things people look at. The Lord does not look at things that people look at. People look at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Only God would have chosen the boy, David, to be king. He was too small, too young, too inexperienced. His the extent of his resume is that he tended a few sheep out in the wilderness and he played guitar once in a while. That was his resume. And God chose this little kid to become king. His ways are not our ways. He didn't pick the mightiest warrior or the most sophisticated politician or the greatest strategist. He picks a boy, a little shepherd boy, out tending his sheep. He still does it, right? Last week I reminded you that to walk this journey, this spiritual journey, may very well require that we lay down our wisdom, our logic, our reasoning, our understanding. And maybe it's all the more important when we're in the powerless place. But in the powerless place, we need to resist, I believe, we need to resist eating, free, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and instead 
eat from the tree of life. Because it wasn't the tree, it wasn't what you get from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that picked David. That tree would never have chosen David. But the tree of life sees things entirely differently. And I think when we do that, when we resist the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and instead choose to eat from the tree of life, it takes us, place, takes us back to a place where we can embrace yet again awe and wonder and mystery. Awe and wonder and mystery reside not in the place of logic and reason and understanding. It's outside that box. And so today I want to continue the series by looking at Jesus' words from John 12. Now before I read John 12, 23 to 26, let me just give you a little context of what I'm about to read. Jesus is doing his thing. He's going around, he's preaching, speaking in different places, and he's getting quite a following at this point. And, and at first, most of it was just among the Hebrews. But his popularity had grown to a point now where even the Greeks or the Gentiles, the non-Hebrews, are curious and coming around. And so the context here is that some Greeks had just asked the disciple Philip if, that, if they could see Jesus. They were looking for an audience with Jesus and went to one of his followers to see if he could make, him ha- make that happen. Philip goes and tells Andrew. And so Andrew and Philip together go... And they told Jesus, and this is Jesus' response from John 12, beginning of verse 23. Jesus replies, The hour has come, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So, Lord, I thank you for your word and the truth that's in your word. Give me grace today, oh God, to communicate what I believe is the heart of this message in a way that will truly be life-giving to my friends. Amen? Okay, I'll dive into that text in a minute. Let me me preface it with some thoughts. I heard a quote recently that just resonated. It just shook me. I'd never heard it before, but boy, it sounds true. And the quote's this, that culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Culture eats strategy for (laughs) breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The late... Business management guru Peter Drucker is attributed with that quote. Now, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines culture as the beliefs, customs, art, etc. of a particular society, group, place, or time. So I think it's inescapable that all of us have been raised in unique, in a unique and distinct culture. And its impact, the impact of this culture upon us is profound whether we're aware or not. Not only that, I think that there, not only is there unique, distinct cultures that have impacted our lives, if you were born and raised on Prince Edward Island, you were raised within a particular culture. If you were born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, there may be some similarities, but there are unique distinctives to that culture as well. 
And the same would be true for all of us. Maybe, maybe you were born and raised in another part of the world. They're, and these cultures have that, they leave their mark. They leave their imprint upon us. And so not only that, but I think worldwide that there is a prevailing a culture and that it looks something like this. So I'm painting with a wide brush, all right? And the prevailing culture of the world is this, that bigger is better. And that success is to be highly exalted in whatever form it comes in. If, it, if it's academic achievement, career advancement, athletic championships, fame, fortune, and power awaits the victors in any, any one of those realms, right? And everyone wants to be like them. This is, this is what's thrust upon us from pretty much all sides all the time with very few, very few slices of escape from it. So I think that that pretty well describes the culture of the world, or at least a portion of the culture of this world. So I've been a church planter, and I know that some of you guys have been a church planter. We've been part of the process of starting a brand new church. And if you do studies on church plants, you'll see that a very high percentage of them are unsuccessful. They don't make it. And I think part of the reason why church plants don't make it is this, is that culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And that um, excited and inspired church planters have wonderful strategies that they've studied and they've copied from someone else who's been successful and that they really, really want to do and they go into a culture that might be very new and different from their own culture and in short order, that culture chews them up and spits them out. I could say this with great experience, you know, moving from New York City to a tiny little town in West Virginia, I had awesome strategies, you know. And had no understanding of that culture. So why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because the kingdom of God has a culture too. And it's so different from the culture of this world. It's almost 180 degrees different from the culture of this world. So when the prophet Isaiah says that God's ways are not our ways, not kidding. <laughs> and it still stands true today. So what does the kingdom culture, what does the, the culture of the kingdom of God look like? Well, in God's kingdom, the first is last. And the last are first. And the exalted are humbled, and the humbled are exalted. And the greatest among us is the servant of all. And the weak are strong. <laughs> and in the kingdom of God, the misfits and the outcasts and the broken toys are the ones who are chosen by God. Listen to what St. Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians. Verses 26 and 28, he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God's, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And the things that are not, how do you qualify as a thing that is not? <laughs> 
and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. His, the culture of the kingdom, God's culture, is not the world's culture. In the king culture, the wisdom of this world is mere foolishness. In verse 20 of that same chapter, it says this. Paul writes, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? This is hard for some of us. I think it's especially hard for the highly educated, for the sophisticated. We spend a lifetime cultivating our mind only to discover that God's aiming at our heart. <laughs> so like I said already, the, kingdom, the culture of the kingdom is not only different from the culture of the world, it's opposed to the culture of the world. I mean, seriously, look at the disciples that Jesus chose. He chose Peter, right? Blunder after blunder after blunder. And get this, when Jesus leaves, Peter's in charge, right? I mean, I look at those 12 guys, I'm not picking Peter. John, maybe, you know, I don't know. But Peter's not at the top of my list. God picks Peter. He chooses Thomas to be one of his disciples, right? He walked with Jesus all these years. Jesus is risen from the dead. Thomas isn't there. And arrogantly he says to his friends, unless I put my fingers in his hand, the holes in his hand, and put my hand in the, the wound in his side, I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus gave him an opportunity to do that. He chose Thomas. He knew Thomas. He knew Peter. These are the men he picked. He didn't pick the brightest and the best that the world had to offer. He picked a regular Joe. The fisherman. He picked a tax collector, for goodness sakes. He picked Judas. <laughs> he, he chose Judas. He stinking chose Judas. His ways are not our ways. You know, and if that's not enough, get this. He, he picks as his champion for the new covenant to be none other than the murdering terrorist Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul and writes the majority of the New Testament. God's ways are not our ways. He does things so incredibly different than we do. I like what Philip Yancey, the author Philip Yancey, writes. He, I think he gets this when he says, I've come to know a God who has a soft spot for the rebels, who recruits people like the adulterer David, the whiner Jeremiah, the traitor Peter, and the human rights abuser, abuser Solitasis. I have come to know a God whose son made prodigals the heroes of his stories and the trophies of his ministry. It's a different culture. It's not the culture of this world. His ways really aren't our ways. So what about John 12? Right? Let's get to that now. Let's take a look at these few verses. Verse 23, so these Greeks had come and, and they had wanted to uh, have an audience with Jesus. And so Philip and Andrew go to Jesus, you know, let him know that they're interested. And this is the beginning of Jesus' reply. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's a kind of interesting response, wouldn't you say? These guys want to come and speak to them. And 
He doesn't say, sure, uh, let's make an appointment at 2.30 and um, we'll meet at Starbucks. No, his response to his two closest. It must have been fun to follow Jesus, right? There had to be time. You read some of his responses in the New Testament, and you've got to be thinking, are they having different conversations? <laughs> they say one thing, and Jesus says something completely other. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, twice prior in Scripture, Jesus made the statement that the hour had not yet come. So something changed. The hour had not yet come when Mary asked him to help out at the wedding feast of Cana, and he said to his brothers that the hour had not yet come when they challenged him in John 7 saying, show, show yourself to the world. But now he's saying that the hour had come. So I wonder if these Greeks appearing, if these non-Hebrews showing interest, if these Gentiles starting to express interest in Jesus was somehow a sign to Jesus that the shift has happened, that the time has come, that, that the, the audience, that the influence, that the impact of his ministry was not at all limited to the Hebrews only, but was all-inclusive. From a Hebrew mindset, there were two groups of people in the world. There were Hebrews and non-Hebrews, kind of like growing up in New York City, right? You were either a New Yorker or you wanted to be a New Yorker. That was the only two categories. <laughs> so you had... Is that a good thing? I thought it was an awesome thing. I never had a problem at all, right? I think it's fabulous. Nadine thinks it's fabulous, too. And so from a Hebrew mindset, it's like you're either a Hebrew or you're a Gentile, which is just a non-Hebrew. Something's profoundly changed. The non-Hebrews, the Gentiles, the Greeks have now expressed interest in Jesus. And, and as a response to that, Jesus says, the hour has come. And so the next three verses will not only speak to Jesus' death on the cross, but I think it also speaks to kingdom culture. And just you know, one more example of the differences in the kingdom. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, when I think of glorification, I'm not thinking the cross. <laughs> I'm not thinking. what The next few statements that Jesus makes, it's in reference to the cross. I'm thinking glory. Who? Worldwide, international ministry, right? You're going to get your picture on the cover of Charisma magazine. I don't know. I don't want any of those things. But, but I'm certain, whatever, it, whatever definition you have for glorified, the cross isn't what I have for it. It's just another indication, indicative of the, the, the differences between the culture that Jesus is coming from and our earthly culture. Verse 24. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So in hindsight, right, we've read the whole story. We know that the cross is coming and that this, is a, this statement is pointing to that. But like with many of the things Jesus says, I think that there's, there's more of a meaning, an application for us as well. Just as a seed will never become a plant until it buried, it's buried and it dies, so the death and burial of Jesus was necessary 
for him to be glorified. Before there was resurrection power and fruitfulness, there was cross. There was a cross. And there was absolute death. But I think there's truth here for us as well. That part of the journey in following Jesus requires faith. It requires risk. It requires trust. It's hard to let go of the former to gain the latter. I mean, if all you have is seed, you got nothing else. It's hard to take that seed and bury it. Because you got to hope. You got to take the risk to bury the seed. You got to trust that something good's going to happen with that seed. But when the seed is all you got, it's scary. Especially if you if you don't have experience with seed, if you don't know what the purpose of seed is, if you ain't never I grew up in Brooklyn. We didn't grow too many things in Brooklyn. Some of you guys on the island have a better understanding. But if all you've got is seed, there's risk there. And it's clear that we're those seeds. It's speaking of our very lives. And just like the seed, we're filled with promise and with purpose and with destiny. Verse 25, Jesus says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Anyone who loves their seed, if you keep it just seen, you'll lose all the purpose, all the destiny. But if you hate it, if you're willing to let it go, plant it into the ground, you'll keep it for eternal life. The purpose will be fulfilled. The destiny will come. The fruitfulness will be there. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the culture of God's kingdom. And it's completely, it's entirely counterculture to this world and to its ways. Ooh, rabbit trail, no rabbit trail. Rabbit trail, no rabbit trail. Rabbit trail, no rabbit trail. <laughs> so I've done church stuff a long, long time, right? Some of you guys have too. And the chances are you're here because you like, you know, that it's a little different. So I want to say this with kindness. But, you know, to, it's, it's really not rocket scientists to grow a big church. There are a handful of things that you need. You need a lot of money. Having a lot of money is really helpful because you have to buy expensive sound equipment and you need to hire staff and that's expensive. And you need to have a facility because those types of things are the things that draw people in. And you know, have a world-class children's ministry and have a you know, just kick-butt youth pastor who knows how to excite teenagers. If you do those things and you have like you know, world-class Worship teams with fancy lights. Some of them even have smoke machines and lasers in church today. Can you believe it? And those buildings are filled with people. But the other thing that usually comes with it is a pastor who's willing to use shame and control and manipulation to drive the people to give the money that he needs to get all those things I just described or to pressure them into showing up. 
and attending his programs and participating in, in his events because you got to keep doing stuff so more people can keep coming so you can keep doing stuff. So what happens if you have a strange pastor like me and really rejects the, the notion that, that, that I somehow have the right to shame you or to guilt you or to pressure you into doing the things that I think you should do? And so if I take that off the table and, oh, my God, in the process, you actually have some freedom. <laughs> and you don't have to feel shamed if you come to church on every Sunday morning or not. I mean, I pastored one church, I followed behind this guy, who told his people, if you want to be in leadership in this church, you're allowed to miss two Sundays a year. And, they, and the people accepted it for some strange, oddball reason. I don't get it. I never would have bought into that. And so they would, they would organize their vacations around Sunday. So they wouldn't leave for their vacation until after church on Sunday morning. I mean, to me, that sounds like control and manipulation. <laughs> To me, it sounds like just all kinds of wrong. And so if you will to let that go, then maybe you have a smaller church. But maybe that's okay. You know? So it's, it's, been a, it's been counterintuitive. It's been counterculture. Even to so much of the church culture. His ways are not our ways. You know? At least twice in Jesus' ministry, well, Jesus feeds the multitude, and they really like it, and they keep coming back because they want food. And so he tells them, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. They're thinking about food when he says that to them. He's speaking metaphorically. They're not quite getting it. How do I know that? Because they all went away. <laughs> they, they all left, and get this, he let them go. He let them go. And not only did he let them go, he turned to his disciples and says, are you going to go too? He gave them the option. He gave them the choice. They could have. But they spent enough time with Jesus, and I think it was Peter who said, if I'm remembering correctly, where, where can we go, Lord? You had the words of life. So I think there's a, count, there's a counterculture way of doing the things of God's kingdom. And I'm concerned that too much of the church is bought into too much of the world's culture and how we do it. And so we buy into bigger is better. Now, I'm not anti-big. Don't get me wrong. You know, 500 people want to show up next week. I'll be happy to have them. I'm not anti-big. I'm just concerned about the way we get from here to there. Are you hearing my heart? All right, so let's shoot that rabbit. Just let him go. Let him go. Run away, run away. Verse 25, let me read that again. If anyone who loves their life will lose it, well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is the way of the kingdom. It's completely counterculture to this world and its ways. And so I wonder, maybe, just maybe, sometimes, when we experience things like the wilderness, or the dark night of the soul, or the valley of the shadow of death, or the powerless place, is it because we're stuck between cultures? Maybe we got a foot in each camp. Or maybe we're in the midst of transitioning from the world's culture to the kingdom's culture. And in that transition, we discover there's a desert in between. 
Maybe we're so accustomed and so comfortable with the, the world's culture that it really is a struggle to get out of it. I think it is a real struggle. God's ways are so different than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher than our thoughts. It would surprise me if we didn't struggle with it. Or maybe some of us, we bounce back and forth like a ping pong ball, you know, from culture to culture. I don't know, I think my, my journey's been something like that from time to time. I like the way that the Passion Translation, the newer translation, not even all the scripture is done yet, but John's Gospel is done. I love this new translation called the Passion Translation. I love the name of it to begin with, but I really like its spin and its take on things. It takes uh, verse 25, it says, The person who loves his life and pampers himself will miss true life. But the one who detaches his life from this world and abandons himself to me will find true life and enjoy it forever. So I think we can take that and say it this way and not at all mess with the context of it. Right? The one who detaches his life from this world's culture and abandons himself to me and my ways will find true life. Will find true life. And enjoy it forever. I like, I like the sound of that. The whole, the whole thought of enjoying life forever. I don't want to see a show of hands. But there's, there's some of us. I mean, we've spoken. Enjoying life forever has certainly not been the experience, right? It's been some other kind of experience. I'd like to find true life and enjoy it forever. I heard it once said that in a rat race, even if you win the race, you're still a rat, you know? <laughs> this world is a rat race. And I think, I know God's offering us a vastly better option. He's offering us true life and one that we can indeed enjoy forever. So when Jesus says, hate your life in this world, I don't believe that he's calling us to a life of pain and suffering. I think he's using strong language to make the point of how much we ought to reject the world's culture and embrace his culture to the degree, as it were, that we hate the alternative. We hate what the world's offering in comparison to what he offers. So I don't think he's calling us to a life of pain and suffering. I think he's offering a better option than this world could ever possibly offer us. And what is that? It's life with him. It's life in him. It's his life in us. Forever. Eternally. I believe it means this, that he's inviting us on a relational journey of awe and wonder and mystery. That's the invitation. Come on this journey with me. Forsake the rational, the reasonable, the logical, of what the world says you ought to do. And come walk with me, and I'm going to rock your world. Wasn't that exactly what happened with the disciples? James and John and Andrew and Peter, busy in the family business. right? They're doing what, they, what their culture raised them to do. To work with dad and take over the family business at some, side, at some point and hopefully pass it on to their kids. And Jesus says, come follow me. And they let go of everything that made sense. 
And they followed Jesus. And they went on a journey of awe and wonder and ministry that was outside of any box they could ever possibly imagine. And then God allowed them to be his instruments to change the world. His ways and not our ways. Verse 26, I think, makes some of this clearer. He says, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So the disciples followed Jesus. They were with him. They experienced this spiritual journey together. And get this, that same offers on the table for you. And for me, that's what he offers us. An intimate, spiritual journey with the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to be so bold to say this. I think the potential is there for us with the Holy Spirit to be vastly greater than what Peter and James and John and Andrew and the rest of them were able to have with Jesus. How can I say that? Because Jesus wasn't alive inside of them. And the Holy Spirit, who is perfectly God, He's absolutely God, at equal measure with Father and Son, not only comes, not only, not only rests on the outside of us like I put this shirt on today, not only shows up once in a while if we sing the right song or pray the right prayer, but actually has chosen to dwell within us. That's a, de a degree and depth of intimacy that's phenomenal. He lives inside of us. Do you realize the, the degree of intimacy, the potential that the all-powerful, infinite God of the universe decides that he's going to live inside of somebody like me? Talk about not logical, not reasonable. I don't understand that. But it is, it is an invitation to a journey, an intimate journey, an intimate spiritual journey of awe and of wonder and of mystery. I like the Passion's take on verse 26 as well. It says it this way. If you want to be my disciple and follow me, and if you will go where I am going, and if you will truly follow me as my disciple, the Father will shower his favor upon your life. Ooh. I need a sip of water. <laughs> if you'll follow me, if you'll go where I'm going, if we'll, if we'll take this trip together, the Father will shower favor upon your life. Guys, let's go where he's going. Let's take the journey. Let's accept the invitation. Let's check off the box. We'll attend. Mail it, mail it back in. Because there's nothing else like it. It probably sounds and feels risky. That's only because it is. But trust me, it's worth it. There's nothing else like it. It's the best deal in the universe. I give him my life. In return, he gives me his life. Yeah, I'll make that deal 100 times out of 100. And he gives us this promise. If we take him up on the invitation, we have this promise. Honor and favor. Favor is the way that honor is bestowed. Favor is the way. That honor is bestowed. Favor is so good. 
Even bad days are good when you have favor. Everything's better with favor. I know all too well what it's like to walk and to have favor. And I know what it's like when the days of favor are past. <laughs> Life is so much better with the favor of God. So I want to take him up on the invitation. <clears throat> but it might sound really risky when you're in the powerless place. When you're in the wilderness. When you're experiencing the dark night of the soul. When the valley of the shadow of death feels like it's endless. You know what you want to do? What I want to do in those experiences? I want to run and hide. I want to find an island that has no people on it except Nadine. She cooks really, really good and she's cute, you know? And isolate myself until my pain goes away. If there are palm trees, it's something even better, you know? That's what I want to do. I'm not interested at that point in going on some kind of spiritual journey with God, taking him up on his invitation. Honestly, I'm not. Hammock, yeah, we could add hammocks between a couple of palm trees on the beach. You get it, Mike. But in a powerless place, when you feel broken and weak and wounded, the best thing we can do is embrace that intimacy with God. And go where the life is, and He's the life. So let's pray. Oh, God, help us. John, why don't you come up, buddy? We'll do another song. Oh, God, help us. Help us, Lord. Some of us have been in the wilderness so long, and we feel so lost. Some of us simply cannot see our ways, our way out of the dark night of the soul. We just, we just can't do it. It's just so dark. We don't know which way to go. And Lord, if we really are, like your word says, those kernels of wheat, those, those seeds, there are some of us, we feel powerless and just buried, overwhelmed and buried, Lord. So right now, right here, in this place, with words ringing in our ears and hearts tenderized and the comfort of your presence, we take a small risk. And Lord, this is what we say to you. We say yes. I'll accept the invitation. We thank you for choosing us and for inviting us. And so, Lord, trembling maybe what we choose you. We choose you back. We make a decision in this moment. Lord, we choose your ways over our ways. We choose your counterculture ways to the worldly's culture ways. We choose your thoughts over our thoughts. We choose your culture over the culture of this world. And so Lord, have mercy. Be merciful beyond our comprehension. Be gracious to us. Breathe life on us again. 
breathe life on us again, oh God. Shine your face upon us. Rain down honor and favor. And do it, Lord, again and again and again until we experience breakthrough. Until we can find the light at the end of the dark night of the soul or the valley of the shadow of death. Until the wilderness and the powerless place gives way to the abundant life you promised. The one that we can actually enjoy. Lord, help me to trust you. Help us to trust you. Lord, where our trust tank is empty, give us whatever it is we need so that we can actually trust you. And out of that trust, I pray that you would birth hope. Bring forth hope. <laughs> and we'd actually hope again. Make it so, God. Amen. So before John leads us in a final song, is there anybody that had a word of knowledge at some point in the service that you'd like to share now? I want to give you the opportunity to do that. Anybody at all, it's okay. Take a risk if you want. Okay. Yeah, Mike? It's not a word of knowledge, but does anybody have any pain? Okay. If you've got shoulder pain or, or back pain, please come up and Mike would be happy to pray for you while John leads us in the final song. Thanks, Mike. Anybody else? Any other words of knowledge? Sense that God's saying, hey, this is what he wants you to do now? Okay. And well, John leads us to a final song. If you are in the powerless place today, if you feel dead and buried, but hope of a resurrection. If you've been stuck between cultures, if you're ping-ponging back and forth, if you need to let go of the past and its ways, if, if you need any kind of help to get out of the powerless place, if you need prayer for anything at all, come up and we'll be happy to pray for you. John?